So I had a client, major abuse during childhood, and he was hearing voices, and he'd been psychotic twice, um, and he was having flashbacks all the time, so really, really difficult for him to function. And I worked with him for over two years, and by the end of it, he was able to work at such a deep level in his body that he no longer hears voices and he no longer has flashbacks. Now that's real change. You know, he can now lead a normal life. Yeah. I'm not saying that every person that hears voices is going to be able to do that therapy. Yeah. I'm not saying that I would do that with every person that hears voices. That was something that, that arose out of the work that we did. Um, but it was really powerful stuff. Hello everyone, that was one of today's guests, Jackie Chivers, a psychotherapist specialising in the treatment of trauma. Jackie's going to talk about how her own journey led her to this profession, the work she does on an individual level, and the wider societal implications of trauma and its resolution. We'll also talk about how political dialogue is adversely affected by trauma, and finish off with some of the connections and questions around trauma and creativity. We were also joined today by counsellor Darren Kenner, who jumps in about halfway through. Now here's Jackie telling her story. Well, I was um, assaulted when I was four, and then my uncle died, and I thought that that was my fault somehow. So I grew up thinking that I was evil, and that um, I shouldn't have friends because they would find out that I was evil, and then I'd be ostracized, so I ostracized myself. Um, and I knew that there was something wrong with me, yeah, so I would hide away and I wouldn't communicate with anyone. I couldn't tell anybody about what happened to me. Um, and that had a knock-on effect um, with the communications that I had with my family. Um, so by the time I was 16, I had a meltdown when I was doing my O-levels. And I told my mum then. And I thought that I was physically deformed in some way. So she took me to the doctors and made sure that I wasn't, um, which was a relief. Um, but we never really talked about it because it was so long ago. Um, and then I went to college. Um, I didn't have very many friends or, you know, I had one friend at school um, and then I had, I was bullied quite a lot because I was different. Um, and so by the time I got to college, I did psychology because I wanted to find out more about myself. And I had a wonderful teacher, Mary, I can't remember her surname, um, but she and the other teacher, Jenny, would, would keep me behind and ask me to do things. Um, so I'd sort pencils or, you know, they just asked me to do these jobs for them. And I had no idea at the time that they were actually trying to help me. Um, and in the end, I started trusting them and I told them about things that had happened to me and they helped me to understand that I wasn't the only one in the world that it had happened to. Um, and they, some of the things they said later, they helped then, but later on I realised that that wasn't okay. You know, that just because it happens in lots of families, you know, it's not okay to say it happens. You know, you've just got to sort of live with it, you know, because it leaves you with distrust, it leaves you with relationship issues. You know, I was really anxious. Um, depression um, and then when I left college I was too scared to go to university 
and instead I got married. Um, and that wasn't the best experience of my life, but I have two children that I absolutely adore um, who are doing well. And um, I, I went to university later to do counselling. And I, I'd started off by training in hypnotherapy and NLP, neuro-linguistic programming. And the, the point of that was to help me. It, there was not any real... I'd sat down one night feeling suicidal. I'd sat on the bed and I thought, you know, if I could help one person in this world, that would make my life worthwhile. So I thought the first person I need to get sorted is me. In order to be able to help other people, I need to be able to help myself. I need to get myself in a place where I feel better. So I went and trained in hypnotherapy and NLP. That changed my life. I became much more aware of, of my inner self and how things can change. Um, and I decided that I would teach hypnotherapy to people because it was so great. So I would do self-hypnosis courses and I thought at the time that I needed to be a teacher in order to be able to do that. So I went to college to get a teaching qualification and they asked me to run a counselling course as part of that qualification. I said, well, I don't know anything about counselling. Oh, well, it's the same as hypnotherapy, you'll be fine. They gave me an A4 sheet with um, all the lesson topics on it. I knew nothing. So I was a week ahead of the students. Um, but they did really well because I was up front with them and said, you know, I don't know anything, I'm new to this and, you know, I'm only a week ahead of you, but let's talk about it. Um, and uh, I got commendation for the teaching, which was lovely. Um, but I realised I know nothing at that point and I thought I need to know more. So I went and did a degree in counselling and put my heart and soul into that. That's where I learned to deal with the anxiety. Um, I fell off the chair in one of my groups um, because I was so nervous about speaking. Um, so, and look at me now, you know, having done the therapy and, uh, and worked through the issues, I'm, I've had a lot of therapy over the years. Um, I'm now able to talk to groups, talk to individuals, can't shut me up normally, you know, so it's very different now. So once I'd done that, I moved back to Wales and I went to put my child into a school in Wales. Um, so we'd gone to have a look at the school and the headmaster, there'd been an incident with a child committing suicide. And I, he was asking me what I do and what have you. And he said, would you be able to set up a school counselling service for us? How much would you need? And I'm like, are you kidding me? He said, well, you've been working in schools up there as part of your degree. You've done all this stuff with the kids. So we'd love to have you here. And I said, oh, well, that would be awesome. You know, so they gave me this job. I set up the counselling service, worked in the school. And as I was doing that, I had to learn to work with kids that wouldn't talk to me. So I got creative. I got a sand tray and then started introducing toys. We had art stuff and all sorts for them to work with. Um, and they were able to express themselves much better through that than they were through words. So that initiated me into, you don't have to use words to do therapy. Yeah. And then I realized I, I was working with adults as well and in private practice and, and I trained as a mediator. Um, and I, I realized that what I was doing wasn't enough because people were coming with, with, with trauma. And 
what I was doing that was just like normal counselling wasn't enough to help them deal with whatever they were doing. So I looked for training in trauma and I came across Trauma Recovery Protocol, which was run in the States. Um, and there's a guy called Eric Walterstorff, who's amazing. I was reading stuff that he had written and he's involved with the trauma dynamics. And I decided that I would go and train in this way of working. They are so much further ahead than we are in the UK. I thought, right, I'll go there and do this training. Um, so I did, and it was absolutely amazing. You know, it, it was just amazing. And I had a car crash whilst I was there. Um, and he did some therapy with me. And it, 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 my body was doing things that I wasn't expecting it to do. Thank goodness I'd done hypnotherapy training because I knew that my body could, but it still felt really weird. Mm -hmm and my foot was forcing itself into the ground. I was forcing myself backwards on the chair and my arms came up as if I was holding a steering wheel. And at the point I reached that position, I realized that I was braking and that I was sort of finishing my, the accident, if you like, and stopping myself from having this accident. So, so everything then calmed down. And then I got this feeling across my chest and, I, and, I, and it felt really, really tight. And it was like, oh my God, I can't breathe. Um, and he said to me, just let it happen. Just let it happen. So I did. And I'm like, oh, it's really tight. I can't breathe. And he said, what's it like? And I said, well, it feels kind of good and bad at the same time. And that feels really weird. And he said, and what else? How old are you? And I said, oh my God, I'm really young. I'm really young. I'm like a baby. I'm really young. That threw me. Yeah. I wasn't expecting that. And then it all calmed down. I had no idea what it related to. So we went off, finished the training. I came home and was talking to my mum and dad about it and saying it was the weirdest thing ever. You know, I told them about this thing across the chest and my mum went, oh my goodness. We had a car accident when you were eight months old. You were in the front seat with me and I had to put my arm around you to stop you going out the windscreen. And I'm like, well, I went goosey, mm -hmm. you know. And, um, and it was like, now I know that the body remembers trauma. Yeah, I was saved from that trauma. I didn't get injured, but the, that stayed in my nervous system. So I really understood that we hold these maps. Yeah, and that then impacts everything else that we're learning. So when you do, you know, like the ACE stuff, yeah, when they talk about brain architecture and how that is formed at such a young age, if we're not getting the right relationships, if we're not able to have that serve in return with our parents or caregivers, our brains don't work in the same way. So my brain has a stress response now that if I get really stressed, I can handle certain levels of stress, you know. But if there's more than, I, I can't control what happens to my body. So I shake, yeah. I know what it is, so it doesn't bother me now, yeah. And I know that there are things that I can do to help it. Um, but learning all of that and, and applying things to myself and knowing that I could get well meant that I knew that I could help other people do the same. So we set up, um, I set up Athena Counseling Services to 
to work um, with um, asylum seekers and refugees first. I've been approached by an organisation to do that. And we were seeing them and using our, I taught my team how to do the trauma work. So they're all trained in trauma recovery protocol. And, and basically we just started working with that and we were getting really good successes because we're working with the body and mind. We're not just doing, um, this is what you've got to think differently. This is what you've got to do differently. We're working with their system to change from within. And the, the most wonderful thing, the, the thing I do most often is change the memories. Yeah, so they never lose, you never lose a memory. But if you add in another memory about the same thing that is different, the brain unhooks the emotional content from that original memory and it doesn't bother you anymore. So I had a client, major abuse during childhood and he was hearing voices and he'd been psychotic twice um, and he was having flashbacks all the time so really really difficult for him to function and I worked with him for over two years and by the end of it he was able to work at such a deep level in his body that he no longer hears voices and he no longer has flashbacks. Now that's real change. You know, he can now lead a normal life. Yeah. I'm not saying that every person that hears voices is going to be able to do that therapy. Yeah. I'm not saying that I would do that with every person that hears voices. That was something that, that arose out of the work that we did. Um, but it was really powerful stuff. And if you're, if you have that relationship where you can trust and you can trust in the process, then things can happen that you go, wow, that's awesome. You know, so that's why I do it because I want to bring people into a better space. You know, can I just get you to give a bit more detail on your own transformation through these different therapeutic mm -hmm. modes? So we're starting mm -hmm. out with this perception that you're eating. <coughs> okay, yes. you know, that's. Yes. I mean, that's pretty hardcore. That's almost like yes. bringing a theological dimension yes. into yes. your sense of self there. Um, and then that shifts over time. And yes. I wonder... Well, when I was seven, I sat in... My grandmother was Catholic and I sat in her bedroom looking at a photo on the wall of Jesus. You know, and I sat there and I was begging that photograph, please let me be like you. Yeah, please let me be better. Let me be good. You know, let me be okay. I want to be like you. I don't want to be like me. Yeah. So he was my mentor. Yeah, he was my um, goal, if you like. Now, did did that persist saying, through doing yes. therapy? That there was yes. this spiritual dimension. Yes, sort of Catholic absolutely, without doubt. Yeah. yeah, not any particular religion. Yeah, just just believing that believing in pronoia that the universe is there and it will support me no matter what happens. Yeah, that's hugely important to me. Okay, so through the the hypnosis and the yeah. counselling. Can you remember particular incidents that where there was a shift yes. in that perception? Absolutely. Yeah. So many. Okay, so I have to think of one I can give you as an example. Um, so the one where I was doing the car, that was that was a major shift about knowing that it's body led. Yeah, that was massive. 
also understanding I was with a tutor of mine it wasn't a therapy session and and she, she we were talking about what had happened to me because we were doing a specific module in psychodynamic counseling and and I was struggling with going back and raking over everything in the past um, so I was saying to her, you know, this is what has happened to me and I can't go back and go through that with a fine tooth comb because it actually makes me worse, not better. Mm. And I've done so much work with that. I don't want to go back. And she leant forward and she said, that sounds like it's really tough. And she touched my hand. And I felt this sensation go through my body because I was like, she gets it. She gets me. She understands and she cares. Yeah. And that made a huge difference to how I was as a therapist. Yeah. That if you can really get to understand where someone's at, that makes a huge difference to them. Yeah. So my job isn't to make you do stuff so you get better. My job is to understand where you're at and help you to get where you want to go. Yeah. So that was massive. The anxiety was learning how to deal with that in my body. So I would lie down on my bed. I've got a piece of music that that takes me into theta and delta brainwaves. So I put that on and then I let my body do whatever it needs to do to release whatever's going on in my body. And I can do that. I can think of a particular situation or I can just let my body do it because I know there's something going on. Um, and I might not know what it's about, but, it, but that was huge as well, knowing that I can do that on a daily basis and reduce any stress that's in my body. Um, I don't know whether I can turn my genes back on, you know, so that my stress response will be normal like everyone else's. I don't know if that's possible, but I do know that I handle it much better than I used to. You know, I used to be massively anxious. I couldn't talk to people, didn't know how to say things, you know, couldn't do superficial um, conversation in any way. I had to learn how to do that. Um, it had to be deep. Yeah. And I think that comes out of trauma because you, you have this sense that there's far more meaning to life than everyone's actually talking about. You know, nobody's having the conversations about what really matters and you want to have those conversations because you're in it. Yeah. And we don't. So I'm okay with talking about what's happened to me and my life i mean not in specific details because that doesn't need to happen i could traumatize people that are listening um but in in broad terms i'm happy to talk about what's happened to me because we need to have those conversations we need to be talking about it because people don't know it's not their fault the way that they are comes from the trauma they've experienced yeah Okay, and you've given a sense of optimism with one particular, well, with both of yourself and the particular client who, over a two-year period, mm. was able to move beyond hearing voices and so on. Mm. How do you find that with the range of people oh. you meet? I mean, like, I'm trying to get us. Okay, so there are some people who really do make a great recovery, but are there, yes. does everyone get something, or are there some people who it's Not really everybody. difficult with? Yes, um, there are some people who are too afraid to change. They're too afraid to even take a risk. They won't listen to the 
CDs that I give out, you know, they, they won't do any of the work because they're so scared of change. They're safe, even though it's a really horrible place to be in, they feel safer there because life changes when you change, you know, and they know where they're at and they've got control over that, even though it's really hard. So there are not many, but there are some people. And when we realize that that's the case, I will refer on to somebody that is willing to just sit with them over many years. Yeah, because I'm not willing to do that. I want right. clients who want to do the work. Okay. Yeah. So that's something I had to recognize in myself. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. interesting running, having run an online support group, we find that's the most challenging thing is getting people through the door. Yeah. Like when they're there, it's kind of yeah. good. But yeah. even people who are expressing that they're desperate to find something to help when when doors open then they're very yeah, can be very scared to walk through, through them yeah. and we have reflected on well what's what's going on there yeah. and if there's such a core sense of well this is for other people not me yes. a sense of hopelessness then yeah. it's just going to be painful yep. to engage it's just false hope and that that i think is is the most difficult thing well, lots of people have tried lots of different things mm. as well and and oftentimes you know, I'm not dissing any other therapist, okay? I'm not the best therapist in the world or anything like that. I'm normal, just like any, anybody else. But sometimes clients will come in and they'll say, I've done this and I've done that and I've done that and I've still got all of this going on, mm. you know? And I'll say, okay, so I work with the nervous system. Are you okay with that? I tell them about that, tell them about ACEs and they go, ah, okay. So actually this is trauma related. So then we do the trauma recovery protocol, we do um, hypnotherapy, we do whatever it is that works for them and, and they get better. Yeah? And they don't have all this stuff, they have to have it unhooked. You know, EMDR can do that, yeah, sometimes. Yeah, that's a really good therapy. Yeah, it's a bit deeper. Um, we do accelerated resolution for trauma, which is um, another American thing, which is taken from EMDR. Trauma recovery protocol came out of EMDR and somatic experiencing, yeah, which was Peter Levine's work. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just this extension of it. So you've got your protocol and you teach that to the client. So they can then take that home. You know, we need to make sure that people are their own therapists. I want to put myself out of a job, basically. Because if I can do that, that's awesome. Yeah. I'll, I'll find another way of making a living. If I've, if I've got everyone that's come through the door in a great place that they're actually not having the impact of trauma on their life anymore, that's awesome. You know, they can go and be, live, do whatever they want to do then. They're not strapped with these cords um, into a seat they can't get out of. Yeah, I find, as you say, like a sense of apathy can set in if people have done a lot and mm. it hasn't mm. helped. Then, it, mm. you know, there's a kind of understandable reticence mm. to, it could be a kind of fatigue mm. set in. Um, but speaking then to that group who have a, a bringing an enthusiasm to recover, what kind of prognosis could you get if, if someone's prepared? Because I think people still who feel like I really am prepared to, Yep. to put my all into this. But I've had experiences where this, this therapy went on for two years and yes. I didn't really feel any different. Right. Um, 
I mean, often I hear this with cognitive behavioural therapy when it's done in just a very cognitive way. That people can, I, I've met yeah, people who've stayed in it for years. Yeah, good therapists do emotional stuff as well. Sure, as, sure. Yeah, so yeah. I'm not making a general yes. statement, but yeah. I. It, and all therapy is cognitive behavioural therapy in some way, shape, or form, because when you change the experiences in the body, you're changing the mindset. Yeah. Yeah. So nothing is separate. Yeah. So I don't dis cognitive behavioural therapy. It's a great therapy. I do it. You know, but I don't use pieces of paper. I use conversation. Sure. I use the relationship, yeah, I use examples, I tell stories, yeah, and so for the people that can't do it on paper, that's helpful, you know, I'll do it however the client needs it to be done, that's the point, you know, if you can, if you can, what I say to people when they come through the door, their first session, I say, right, I have a lot of tools and techniques that I can show you, that I can teach you, that you can use for yourself. But if you choose not to use them, yet yeah, this isn't going to work. Okay, I will do whatever I can. If you're willing to do the work, I will do whatever I can and we will get you to feel better. Yeah, and if you don't do the work, this is not going to work and you'll be wasting your money. I had a young lady that came, a mother, and she had only six weeks to come. And she took the CD that I gave her and she went home and she listened to it four to six times a day. Now, I'd said once a day, mm. okay? Four to six times a day before she picked her children up, when she brought them back, blah, 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 all the time. And then she was listening to it with her children in the evening, right? Awesome. She's teaching her children how to do it too. It's only a relaxation CD, okay? So two weeks into that six weeks, she was saying, I'm so different. And I said, okay, what are you doing differently? I'm listening to that CD all the time. And I'm like, you see, when you put in the work, things change. And a social worker emailed me and said, what have you done with her? And I said, it's not what I've done, it's what she's done. Yeah, and it's quite, it's quite incredible with, with examples like that because I've seen it at both ends of the spectrum of people coming to groups um, that I've been involved with of people who have struggled over a long period of time and mm -hmm. have to work very hard to get mm -hmm. small results. Mm -hmm. But I've also seen people who have come in very stressed out and just a, what I would think of as a relatively simple meditation exercise mm -hmm. has made all the difference for them. And it's like, mm -hmm. wow, you just never had that, that yeah. one tool. Exactly. And there are so many, you know, I, I had a client once who it took us a long time to get to a good place where we could, you know, have that trusting relationship. Um, and, and she, I would say to her, okay, so, there's this, there's this, and there's this, you know, but obviously you're free to find whatever fits for you. And she went away and she got things that I hadn't, didn't even know about. Yeah. And she would bring that in. She said, oh, I've got this. And I'm like, fantastic. Yeah. Great. Now I've got something else that I can tell clients about. Yeah. Thank you for finding that. Thank you for using that. Thank you for telling me it works well. Yeah. Headspace was one of them. Yeah, I didn't know about Headspace. She introduced me to that and now I recommend it. Mm. Yeah, because it's a really good tool. There's um, Yupa is a, a little app. It's like having your own personal therapist on your phone and you can type in what you're feeling and you'll get responses. Yeah, it's not a personal interaction, but it's not far from it. It's mm -hmm. a really good app. Yeah, so if you need something that will help you through a particular moment in your life, that's a really good app to use. You know, it's all about giving people the tools so they don't have to come to therapy. Yeah? 
pretty much have our job. Yeah. Okay, so we'll move on from the individual, the individual to the societal then. And Darren, feel free to jump in at any point. Mm-hmm. We could also look at things like crime as being a trauma problem. Mm. So how do you see that playing out if we, if we were to engage with trauma more widely? the effect it would have on society as a whole. Mm. Well, I think you can answer that yeah. one, can't you? Um, well, if you look at ACEs, you're 20 times more likely to be incarcerated if you have an ACE, four or more ACEs. What well, that's childhood experiences. Right. Um, so that is trauma. And if that, if by having a trauma, it skews your way of thinking, you're more liable to take the wrong route, getting in the wrong crowd. And then that takes you down a path which will lead into um, substance abuse or, or, or anything else that will take you into crime. So there is a, a, a definite cause and effect from trauma. And um, there's places in, in America that are really, really hot on the ACEs at the moment. Um, you've got Nadine Burke, who's been made the, the chief person in charge of the whole of the health services in California because of her work dealing with ACEs. And they've seen the impact that sorting childhood issues out stops mental health issues, stops educational issues, stops justice. Justice, And, and it has a massive effect on everything else. Because as Jackie says, when you have an issue, you isolate yourself and then you form your own group of isolated people. So it has a massive effect. I've had a play therapist on the podcast before, Claire Beckel who talked about the economics of mm. what she does. And when she pitches her work to a city council mm. or something, and she works with young children and also um, mothers-to-be who awesome. Yes. Awesome. come in, or when, when they're um, young mothers who may come in holding the child by the leg or something, or its head down, <laughs> yeah, yeah, on the ground, yeah. and, and uh, <laughs> developing that connection, because they never had it themselves, yeah. how to connect with the baby. And, and yes. she would talk about the economics of that over maybe a 20-year period, how it saves a fortune, essentially. Well, you were telling me yesterday about the £6,000 thing. Yeah. Um, They've looked into, of course, that that whole circus. It's all about serving return, right from the word go. When um, a child's in utero, there is a chemical action, so that if the mother is suffering anything, the child will feel that. If, if the mother is taking a substance, the child will, will have that. So there's a lot of chemical stuff going on. Quite often the mother, if they have mental issues or, or any other kind of issues, they don't automatically look at the child. When a child's first born, you have that sort of, it's they can only see so far, so you have to interact with them. And it's that, that connection which can start. That's where it starts. So saying that people dealing with things at that stage is fantastic. The knock-on effect is, they cause ACEs. So if a child hasn't got that interaction, they're less likely to interact themselves. And then the process starts. We were talking with the police on the Isle of Man yesterday, and they were saying that 80% of the children that they deal with are in care. And there was a study done in Ohio, I think it was. And they were saying that um, looking at what effect financially an interaction will have, and without any interaction at all, to get a child from five to 18, it would cost $120,000 mm-hmm. per child. 
because that child is going to be in care, they're going to have social workers, they're going to be in the justice system, there's all the school educational, they're being um, excluded from school and the extra stuff that that causes, they're looking at $120,000. Um, and they were comparing it to what would it cost to put the interaction and they worked out the interaction to the actual do help with a child was about $6,000. But when you extrapolated that out to when they were 18, it only meant that the state was spending 60,000. So they approached it to government, to the, the authorities to say, well, you're not spending money now, you're actually diverting money that you haven't spent yet. So that is a product by paying $6,000 now, you're saving $60,000. And that's only up to the point that they're 18. Because and here you, it's being raised to 24, it, isn't it? Yes, they're, they're raising yeah. the, the um, juvenile justice area from 18 to 24, mm -hmm. which is when they say that the plasticity is, is at its peak, when your brain is, has the it most gets much harder It gets much to harder to do after things that. after that. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind um, of the maturity of the brain at 24. But if you think even after that, if nothing's been done, that doesn't stop the costs. They've only taken no. it up to 18 because mm. they're only looking mm. at, at mm. juveniles. Mm. So as a financial impact, that is massive because they're still in the justice system. They're still in the mental health system and they will probably never come back out of the mental health system once they've reached that age. You know, the other thing about it is that if you're giving parents at the very beginning of their journey the tools that they know how to interact the right way with their children so their children are resilient, not only are you building a great community for the future, but you're giving parents the tools that they need to be great, awesome parents. Yeah. What parent doesn't want that? What parent mm. isn't absolutely terrified that they're not going to do a good job? You know, we all want to do a good job. It's not possible for us to do a brilliant job um, with our children in any case. No, there's no such thing as a perfect parent. Yeah. So. So we have to know that, but we can do the best that we can. And if we've given the tools to do that, my parenting would have been so different if I'd known then what I know now. Yeah, my children are actually pretty well balanced, but they, I think it would have been better if I'd known what I knew know now then. I'm, I'm looking into more and more stuff as we go along and I still have teenage kids and I'm going, oh, I didn't do that. Oh, I didn't do that. You're never going to do everything perfectly. Yeah, There's things right. you're not going to do. Right. You can't compare yourself and go, oh, well, I did that, they did that. That's all, You're always going to fail at mm -hmm. that. You're always going to be a failure. But my kids are pretty well balanced. But I still ask for help. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm struggling with this. It's just that people go, you, this is possibly, you, have you done that? And you go, oh, yes. Yep. I've just let that one slip. You see, that's so, about recognising and accepting that, that we're all fallible, isn't it? John yes. McKnight said John, from yes. Nurture Development, he says, we are all fallible. Yeah. And if we can accept that we're all fallible and still care about each other, yeah, and not judge when we're fallible, then things get much better. Yeah. We all make mistakes. And if we were to not get so tied up in not making mistakes, yeah. this would be a much better world. And the judgmental yeah. thing. I make mistakes. You make mistakes. Yes. We all make mistakes. Yes. It's a mistake, isn't it? You get to do it again, do it a different way. It's a mistake. And, and you yeah. learn, because I, I was involved in therapy and then kind of went more into education, mm -hmm. but taking the, 
the therapeutic way, the cognitive way of looking at um, at learning and went into different aspects there. And it is all about you learn by making mistakes. Yes. If you don't make mistakes, you don't have a plan B because everything's perfect. Mm -hmm. And if you keep doing that, when you do eventually make that mistake, because no one goes on forever not making mistakes, when you get to the point where oh, it's all gone horribly wrong, you have no other way. And we learn by repetition, but we really do learn by doing something wrong. Let's try it again. And those are the, those are the lessons that stick. And when we take that away from a child, so I had a parent who brought his son in. He wasn't supposed to bring his son, but he did, um, which was a bit of a surprise. So I was playing with the son on the floor and, um, and letting the, the, the son get on with what he was doing. And then the parent just suddenly stepped in and took over. Yeah, and I thought, whoa, he's preventing his child from learning and telling him he can't do it right. Mm. Yeah. See, if parents don't know that you've got to let the, ch the child learn through making mistakes, they're so worried about my child's got to do it right. Okay. Yeah? yeah, you've got to get it right. Yeah, yeah? And, and you've got to pass all your exams in school and you've got to do this and you've got to do that and you've got to follow all the rules. They're so tied up with that. They forget that their children are learning all the time. And in order to learn, you have to try things out. You have to experiment. Yeah. If you're, if you're allowing a child to find their way of doing things, yeah, when I'm working with a child in therapy, I'm only allowed to help if the child asks me. Mm. And sometimes they do. Sometimes they ask me to play. Yeah, so I do. Yeah, but I tell them right up front, I'm not doing anything unless you want me to. Yeah, you direct me. You're in control. They don't get the opportunity to learn how to say no. Do as you're told. Yeah, you have to eat your dinner. You have to go to school. You have to do this. You have to do that. You have to do your own work. Yeah, these are all rules that we place in our society that children have to obey. So when they come and meet the guy that's going to take them in the forest and abuse them, how do they say no? How do they learn to say no? The only way that they can learn to say no is if they're allowed to say no. Mm. Yeah, to the things that don't really matter. Yeah, so if you don't want to eat your dinner, you are going to go hungry. Yeah, there isn't going to be anything else until lunchtime. Are you okay with that? But you can say no if you don't want to eat it. Yeah, you'll be starving by tea time and then you'll eat your food. I'm going to say the other side of that again is if you look at the obesity difficulties that mm -hmm. we're having and the problems that people are having with being overweight. When you talk to people, certainly my age, it's a lot of you have to clear your mm, plate. Yeah, you have to. Yeah. And I, um, I used to run a, a diet program. I won't say diet, a, a weight loss program because I don't like the word diets. Diets don't work because the moment you exclude something, you have to think about it to not think about it sort mm -hmm. of thing. Um, but a lot of what the reason why a lot of people are overweight, I mean, it's not taking into, of course, medical issues yeah, thing, sure. which, which affect, is because they've learned bad habits, which have often been forced on them. So saying that you have to do this, you have to do that, is you think you're doing the, the right thing, saying, well, you know, you need, to eat, you need to eat those, you need to eat those, you have to eat them, you're not leaving the table until you have, it means that people think no matter how much they're given that it's 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 rude not to eat that finish the whole plate it's rude to leave something yet you're giving i mean nobody actually understands how big a portion is particularly 
but they put too much on the plate and they mm. feel they have to finish mm. it. And, and the interesting thing about that is that if you've had trauma, right, and your brain isn't working the, the right way, yeah, or the, it's working differently from if you haven't had trauma, you're more inclined to go for things that will give you a reward. Yes. It will give you that feeling of feeling better. Yeah, so food can become something yes. that gives you that reward. Mm. That's why you're 15 times more likely to take heroin or cocaine yeah. if you've had adverse childhood, four or more adverse childhood mm -hmm. experiences. You're 11 times more likely to smoke dope. Yeah, you're um, two and a half times more likely to eat badly. But it's not because you're choosing to do that. It's because you're self-medicating. You're trying to find a way of managing what is going on in your body. Yeah. And when we when we know that it's easier to deal with it. Yeah. It doesn't mean it goes away. Yeah. You have to you have to kind of you have to change your whole lifestyle in order to make yourself feel better. And yeah. that's what people find difficult. Yeah. When I first started the winning the game of weight loss program with John Asaraf and Neurogym, um, I was I was six and a half stone heavier than I am now. And I, it, I had to change my whole lifestyle, but the program was so great that I was able to do that. Yeah, and, and he uses um, inner work, inner size he calls it, um, to, to help you to learn how to let go of the stuff that makes you eat more and to learn how to eat. There's, it's a big program and you go through it over 12 weeks. And it changed my whole outlook on life. It changed what I eat, how I eat. Yeah, it made food not as important to me. But then what do you do with your brain when it's not getting that comfort that it gets from fat and sugar? You know, what do you do then? Yeah, I'm lucky because I have inner size. I have containment that I can release stresses with. And it's a mismatch of all these different therapies that come together that I will use in order to make sure that I'm feeling okay. It's, so it's not one thing that fits, it's not one size fits all. You, know, you, have to, you have to do lots of things and find out what works for you personally. So I guess taking this right back to your original question, <laughs> to make, let's link it all together, is if you think about the issues that the health service is having, the issues that the justice system are having, the issues that the educational system are having, if they're all affected by trauma, they're spending millions on trying to stop being, people being obese. They are struggling with the volumes of crime. Again, the thing on this morning about kids going into gangs in, in the UK. Mm. So it's almost a second on the news, I think it was. They're dropping out of education. Education is not working and spending loads and loads of money trying to restructure the educational system so they can help kids. But that's just, they're just, looking, just taking it as an isolation where it's not isolation, it needs to be an integrated service where a trauma will affect your chances of mm. mental health, physical health, mm. education, justice system. And that all costs the state when it goes wrong. And what's wonderful is, you know, we've been having these meetings with people, teachers and the police and stuff, and everybody gets it. You know, when we're talking about adverse childhood experiences, they get it. They know that it makes sense. Yeah. But it's really difficult for them to actually get it into place. Yeah. So we were talking yesterday about how maybe we just need to do it 
and then ask for permission afterwards. You know, something somebody said to me on the island once, it was a, something that people do on the island, yeah. You do it and then you ask for permission <laughs> or forgiveness afterwards, um, which I thought was quite funny. And I said, you know, maybe that's what we need to do. We need to get it into practices where nurses are working with pregnant mums and what have you. We need to get it into schools and, and then, you know, it will happen anyway. Um, everyone will be informed about it and it's the information that people don't have. So on the Towards Discovery Facebook page, we've got lots and lots of videos informing people about ACEs, saying, you know, this is what it's all about. Yeah, that's what we're trying to do with that Facebook page is to is to inform people. Yeah. For me, I want to know at my moment of death, I want to know that my life made a difference to the people who are carrying on beyond me yeah i'm not going to change the world i know that all right but but to know that i've made a difference in some small way that is my main value yeah that's what i do this for yeah is to is to bring people into a, a different place into an awareness of what they can do the the wonderful talents and gifts that they've got that they can then share and make this world a better place. It's not a great world to live in right now. Yeah, I'm not political in any way, shape or form. And we're not going to talk about Brexit. But, you know, it's a it's not an easy place to be. Everybody at the moment is scared. Nobody knows what's going to happen over the next couple of months. Yeah, my business is going to be affected. Yeah, because one of my therapists can't stay with us. She has to move to Europe. She has no choice. Um, and and so that's going to affect us. But at the, at the end of the day, if we're not talking about how we're feeling and we're not working with that, it's not going to get better. Let, let me pick up on that then. And I promise I won't ask you about Brexit. Yeah. And I've no inclination to. Yeah. Um, <laughs> let me ask you about how, if we're not going to talk about it, how we talk about things like Brexit. Yes. Okay. You could insert the Whatever. Trumpism Couldn't in the United States absolutely. and a million other things. Yes. Okay. You because could insert religion, sex, sexuality. You could insert anything. Yes. Here's you know. what I see since about 2016, when it yeah. feels like society became, the, the polarizations in society became more apparent. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, that I, I don't encounter a lot of people who meet these questions with a kind of open mind. Yeah, I don't really know yeah, what's best, right? They don't have mm -hmm. an open mind. What I encounter is a lot of people who are absolutely certain and have a, a certain level of contempt for the other, yes. right? As being yes. like people that just don't get it in some level, they're stupid in some way. Um, That's where the cognitive behavioral therapy comes in, isn't it? Because actually, if I'm, if I'm teaching somebody about anger management, right? One of the things that I do is I say, okay, on Fridays, you have a rule that says everybody has to wear red socks. And I have a rule that on Fridays, everybody has to wear yellow socks. Yeah. Are we going to go to war because, the color of, because of the colour of our socks? Yeah. Or are we going to find out the reasons behind why you've chosen red socks and why I've chosen yellow socks? And how can we make a compromise that fits for both of us? OK, but saying that, I don't find provokes that response. Because what, what, yeah. when I... 
because it's not hard for me to relate to being locked down on a particular position. It's yeah. something that I have to work to move yes. beyond and to yeah. move into that sense of open-mindedness. An example I always give out, I remember going to a spiritual group about 10 years ago, and afterwards I was having some conversation around the dinner table, and I don't know what it was. I think it might have been global warming or something right. like that, right? Okay. And okay. I, which is, it's one of those, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it really is one of those. Mm-hmm. Quite mm-hmm. And whatever, like, I think that, well, I had a different position than the person sitting opposite me, right. okay? And this is back yeah. and forth polarization yeah. going on. And then I remember him dropping his position and looking at it from my perspective for a moment. Yes. And then something, and it was like, yes. that doesn't yes. happen. Yes. <laughs> yes. You know, yes. allowed to do that. It's very happen. refreshing, isn't and it? And yes. what I saw in that, in the context of a, a Eastern Advaita spiritual group, was I, I conceptualized that as this person has cultivated a deeper sense of identity than their opinions and then you can hold an opinion and you know to let it go and oh yes. look i'm yes. still here yes yeah. and what i see societally is an attachment yes. um, to an opinion and people express because it in it's different about ways control. it's about control you know it has to be this way because that gives me more control yeah and and when we if we've been traumatized we need control that's one of the things that we don't have and that we absolutely need so we get really stuck on our beliefs and our ideas and how things should be yeah and and then when people don't do what we think they should do we get really angry or riled and and we fight because that's what they should do yeah that's what keeps me safe that's what keeps Mm. my control in place um and they don't do it consciously it's not like oh i need control so that's what everyone's got to do um it's just the way that it forms itself and then when when the when someone else comes into the picture and they've got a different point of view, if they're in the same place and they need control too, then you need somebody in the middle. Yeah, you need a mediator. Training as a mediator was an awesome thing to do because what it taught me to do was to help people to listen to each other. We don't listen. When we're stuck in our controlling little space, we cannot listen. It's all about, you have to hear what I've got to Mm. say because Mm. I'm right. Yeah, this is what's right and you need to believe it. Yeah, this is this is what we should do. This is where we're at. Yeah, and I know I'm right. And actually, if you say to somebody, how do you know that you're right? How do you know that what you are thinking is 100% true? Because anything that is truth has to be 100% true all the time. There is nothing that's 100% truth all the time. Mm-hmm. Nothing. Except I... maybe that change happens. <laughs> yeah. I, also, I also true. think other things come into that as well. I mean, because you can only approach a standpoint from what you know, because you can't know everything about everything. Exactly. And if something, if you are coming from a trauma, that's going to make that issue very emotive. Or if you know of something that has made you very, so mm-hmm. you've seen a video online of somebody doing something to somebody, you're going to go, that's awful. Those horrible people, look what they are doing straight away, divide you don't look at but has that person had a trauma that's caused them to do it that there's very little understanding on the other side of it so if you come to somebody and you have your point of view and they come to you with their point of view which is polar opposite personality come into that if you're if you're not a person that's going to shout and go rah, 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 about your about what you say but that person wants to you will then be shouted down, you will get your point across and you will feel 
I've stopped listening. And then the next time you go and do it, it will have pushed you on further that you really, you see that person shouting that issue, the next person you speak to. You don't see the person in front of you, you see that issue being pushed at you. This is right, you're wrong. This is right, you're wrong. And again, you form another barrier. And that can all come from your experiences. Um, I, I travelled quite a bit, um, so I'll give you a little story. I, I was sitting on the side of the road in Spain, in Torremolinos, which is actually a place where they pick up people to go to the Foreign Legion. It's a drop-off pick-up place, and I didn't realise until I spoke to this. And there's a little Italian guy sitting there on the side of the road with his brown leather jacket on, and he was looking really, really sad. So I offered him a chip, right, mate, you want a chip, kind of thing, you know, as you do, because you're from the Alman, you've got to talk to somebody. Um, and he went into a story and he told me the story that he was going in for a second stint into the, the foreign legion because they'd let him out for a series of months because he had to go back and kill somebody. He'd, the reason why he joined the first time is he was, he was from Sicily, that sort of, well, it wasn't quite Sicily, but the very bottom of, of Italy. Um, the family were very poor and his two older brothers decided this family had wronged them, which they had in a way, but it wasn't as bad as, so they were going to go and do something about it. So they dragged him along. It ended up with um, somebody getting hurt on the other family. And the two brothers were arrested, but he, because they knew he was involved, he had to leave. So he joined the Foreign Legion. And then, his family were being victimised by this other family because of the hurt that they'd done. And in Italian, certainly the South Italian culture, it's about saving face. He had to come out and kill that bloke. He didn't want to. It was so against... He, he said he cried all the way up on the bus, because he only got for the bus fare there, and he cried all the way back. And I met him, and he, and he looked washed out. You could see there was something wrong with him he felt an obligation that actually went against his core, but it was values that was forced mm. on him. And I thought, you know, if I'd have lived there, could I, if I'd have brought, been brought up in those circumstances with my, can I judge him from what's happened? Because I've not lived in his shoes. I've not lived in that, that pressure, that, mm. that, that culture. And he's done something he didn't want to do. And he's now having to go back on the run again because he did, uh, he actually he he killed the person who hurt the mother, and then also called, I think they were called sheriffs in the area. He'd killed the sheriff, the local policeman, as well to get away. So it just escalated beyond beyond anything from a from a robbery to a to mm. a murder, completely out of his control. And then he was just going to go, and he said, "Well, I'll never go home." And probably the best thing for me is probably get shot and die, because that's how he felt at that time, and. You can't judge where, what other people have seen, what other people have done. You don't know. And the only way is to take that, let's, let's listen, let's listen. And it's hard. It's hard. If somebody's saying something that you really disagree with, it's very hard to hear it. And this is where like the mediation skills and... And the pro-social matrix And the pro-social well. matrix. You know, that teaches people how to have a conversation. It meets everybody's needs. Um, in the room first, it asks them what they're concerned about, my view. So everybody gets to know what's going on and how people are feeling. 
and then you go around and you discuss what it is that you actually want to get sorted and then you work out a way that you can do that and and it opens the group up so that you're able to have the discussions about something that's really emotive um, and get somewhere that you need to go um, and the whole group then has a focus that this is where we need to go and we all have these differing opinions it's a bit like the Quakers you know they have um, their meetings and they say right okay we need to find a solution to this and they will discuss it and work it out therapeutic community in the prison that's exactly what they would do they would have meeting after meeting after meeting discussing all the pros and cons looking at what everybody was experiencing looking at all the different opinions in the room and then they would work out a way that that it would fit yeah so they would work out a solution that was good enough for everyone and that's what they would take forward as a majority vote. And everybody understood that even though some people wouldn't agree with it, it was the majority and it was what was best for the community. Yeah, and that's what they would do. And even though they didn't agree with it, some people would go, okay, well, I don't like it, but I'm gonna do it because that's what we've all agreed. Yeah, we don't have those kind of conversations and we need to. We should have therapeutic community as a way of life. You know, if we were actually discussing what the issue is with everybody involved and saying, OK, we need a solution to this. We need some way. If it's about a child, yeah, if there's a child that's really struggling and they're committing crimes and what have you, everybody needs to be together. The child needs to be there. Yeah. And we need to be saying to the child, what is it that needs to happen? What is it that can make things different for you? What is it that can make things better for you? And on occasion, the child will go nothing. Bugger off, I'm not interested, you know. Most children will go, well, actually, if I've got a safe place that I can go back to at night, that would be good. Yeah, that would stop me from being on the streets and committing crime. If I've got some friends, I need a mentor. I need someone just to talk to me. Whatever it is, you know, kids are amazing. I've had seven-year-olds in my office and I've said to them, what would make it different for you at home? Well, if... If my mum or my dad yeah, was able to say no better, I'd actually behave myself. They tell me what the parents have to do, mm -hmm. and then I tell the parents. Mm -hmm. We have to learn how to say no. Really? Yeah. And they do, and the child behaves. It's, we have to do it communally. We have to, yeah. we have to be talking as in groups, not two people over here talking about that child over there the child doesn't know anything about what's going on but they're going to have this thing done to them yeah how many children say i'm not going to therapy yeah but if they come along with their mum and it's their mum going for therapy and they're just going to come along and see what it's like yeah that's awesome and they get to see that mum can ask for help or dad can ask for help dad can talk about whatever issues they've got mum can talk about whatever issues they've got um and work out a way with the child there talking, yeah, or playing and talking to figure out how they can do this differently. Children chip in, mm. you know? And children don't come with an agenda. No, they just want things to be good. Yes, and I think the safe place is the key because, and I'm probably being a little bit hypocritical here, but you look at social media, because I, I know how to manipulate social media. I, I, I can build a page and I can build an audience and I know that I know what I'm doing to, to, to create that. I, that's, I'm, I'm, I'm okay at it, you know? I'm not the greatest, but I, you know, I can do it. 
But social media is not the place to have a, a, a discussion about something you feel emotive. Because, first of all, somebody could write something innocuous and you completely misread it because there's no emotion. You can't put sarcasm, you can't put irony into a, into a statement and be picked up the way you wanted to be picked up. I mean, that's why they put emojis on now, but you mm. can't put an emoji in take. Mm. If somebody's reacted, they don't see the emoji. Mm. So it is about a safe place. Um, th there are some fabulous groups on social media who are monitored constantly for people with, with mental issues, mm. with anxiety issues, depression issues. But it's a 24-7 thing because it's a worldwide place. So, but if they are monitored, then yes, you can have open discussions and, and it can become a safe place. But there's not many on social media. And people do join these groups and corrupt them. I, I see it happening all the time. And it, it's hard to have an open group when you're excluding people because you have to allow a anything to be said. And if you take an issue with it, then let's deal with you and your issue with what's being said. But that's very, very difficult. And I think the safe place is the key. Mm. So if you feel safe that you can discuss anything with another person and there'll be no victimization, there'll be no bullying, there'll be none of the negative stuff that can go with it, then you can discuss anything. Yeah. And you can give the power back where it needs to go back mm. to the to the child. Yeah. So children who are told you've got to do this, you've got to do that, got to, they don't have any power as such. And and actually, they need to know how to handle power so that they can be balanced, responsible adults yes. that contribute when yes. they get older. And, and power is a big thing as well, because yeah. a lot of the conversations we've had now, the whole social services subjects have been brought up. And that's like alarms, alarms, alarms. Well, they're so overwhelmed. You yeah. know, they've got so many cases. There is no way that they can cope with everything that they've got to do. No. You know, they just can't. It's impossible. There yeah. are so many people that they've got to see and yeah. sort out and they're, they're just getting overwhelmed. It, 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 the system is becoming overwhelmed by the number of traumas that's, that have happened and it isn't going to get any better because right now our society is a society wherein both parents will go out to work, the child will be put into childcare. That doesn't necessarily mean that child's going to be traumatised. But it, it isn't the same as having somebody at home with you every day, doing a structured routine, making sure that interaction is happening, making sure that you're learning. You know, it's not the same. Um, and, and one of the mothers that I'm working with currently has a, a five month old and she's been wondering about whether she should go back to work. And she's made the decision not to go back to work because she now appreciates that the job that she's got is the most important job in the entire world. She's got the next three to five years, yeah, to work solely with her daughter because she is building her daughter's brain. She's building resilience into her daughter from day one. Yeah, and if we don't do that, then we're asking for trouble later. Mm. You know, she really gets it and that's what she's doing. So she's not putting money above her child. She's not putting material things above her child. She's saying, actually, this is really important to me. This is what I want to do. You know, and we need to be teaching mm. that. But the, saying, going back to social services, but the misperception of what social services are going to do in a given situation scares parents, 
Yeah. And so the defence has come up straight away. They put the wrong image across, which can often cause the issues that they're, or the, the, the results that they're trying to stop happening. Mm -hmm. But that misconception stops parents asking for help. Mm -hmm. And they're afraid to ask for help because they're afraid to be seen or to be felt to be inadequate. Whereas going back to fallibility, we are all inadequate in some way. We have to know that we, we are free to make mistakes, but the help's there if you need it. And social services have a job to do and they can't cope. And all of the services are struggling because of the volumes. So let's go back to us. So what we're hoping to do is that we can be maybe not necessarily seen as an alternative, but as to fill in the gaps of what's missing. And, and there are other places that are opening, other organising. Queen, for a great example, because we're dealing with the, with the children and Queen's dealing with, with more the adult side of it. A great alternative, a great way, a great, a great place to go while you're waiting, a great place to fill in the gaps that the services aren't doing. Some of the services have a certain remit. They will take you off a substance. They don't deal with your mental health. So once you come out, you're now in a position to get help. That's where ourselves and Queen and the other people can come in and say, well, well we can help you with that now. And it's, it really is, let's get people thinking, I, 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 I can't, I, I'm making mistakes, it's all going horribly wrong, let's not, let's get, up, let's get past that. Yeah, we, we're all making mistakes. Sometimes you need to help, sometimes you need to ask. There's a huge movement now about, there was a massive you know, movement. with um, business um, where people gather together, there's been conferences and stuff yeah. about um, the willingness to fail, mm. you know, because that's what takes us into making light bulbs and yes. TVs yes. and, you know, mm. the only way that we actually make things better and produce things is by failing first. And if we don't accept failure, um, then we are stopping ourselves, we're limiting ourselves in what we can do. Mm. So, but I think if you've been traumatized, you don't want to fail at anything. No. You have this thing about needing to prove that you are good enough. Well, let me come on to that as a final question yeah. then. I've, something that is in some ways troubling to me, I've heard about this connection that a lot of people suppose exist or feel exist between trauma and creativity mm -hmm. um, and in lots of ways I don't have um, statistical evidence mm -hmm. for this okay but I hear people say things like great writers were often traumatized mm -hmm. as children because it the connection there being that they create a fantasy world mm -hmm. to escape into mm -hmm. and then they can work on making it more and more elaborative and this yeah. is where this creative genius comes from um, I do know obviously there are connections between things like hearing voices and trauma, mm -hmm. but also mediumship, um, people with who, people, near-death experience, people who have near-death mm -hmm. experiences um, have a higher, there's a higher chance they've had childhood trauma. People mm -hmm. who, and again, there's a casual belief that people who, who consider themselves to have some sort of psychical ability have had childhood trauma, and it's been, it's been studied with mediums by Julie Byshaw when yes. she was, she was doing that whole and sort of the efficacy of mediums is another thing um, she found a high propensity for child, which makes sense because it's another form of, of hearing voices. So we've been talking about how wonderful it would be if we had less traumatised children growing yeah. up. 
and now I'm thinking, okay, well that that's great, but if you if you really wanted to go for it with your children, right? If you wanted the next Shakespeare, Picasso, right, yeah. or Picasso, yeah. maybe traumatize them. Yeah. Is that the thing to do? Now <laughs> you know I think it's a very good that, question. That's one though. of those questions that does yeah, keep yes. me awake a bit at night, yes. thinking about okay, well what yes. you know So what's the best way to bring up my child? You know, trauma happens in life anyway. So the majority of children are going to experience some trauma at some point. Someone will die, um, someone will be in an accident, someone will get sick, you know. All of that happens. Grandparents might pass away, you know. So trauma happens. It's a part of life. So we're not deliberately going out there to go and get trauma into our children's lives so that they can be creative. But what we can do when we're supporting them through that trauma is make it non-toxic. So what we do is we make sure that we're talking to that child in a way that says, like Hurricane Katrina, the parents who were saying, it's going to be okay, we're all together, we're all alive, you know, yes, we don't have our house anymore, we don't have anywhere to live anymore, we're way away from um, New Orleans, um, but we're together and it's going to be okay. Those children did so much better than the ones that um, didn't have that. Yeah, their brain development was different. And, and that doesn't make those children who've had the good relationships any less creative. They've still gone through the trauma. And actually parents can use, I often say to, to parents, get a sand tray. Let your child have mm. an area in the house where they can play. Whatever it is that your child likes doing, give them an art area, give them a play clay area, you know, Whatever it is, let them do it. If they're into drama, get them into a drama group. Whatever it is that they can do creatively will help them through whatever traumas are happening. It makes them more resilient anyway. Yet they have a way of coping with it. So it's not, it's not that you have to have toxic stress in order to be creative. Trauma creates creativity. Yet out of trauma, there can be massive post-traumatic growth. But... It's when we don't have the relationships that we need and what have you, that, the, the, that you don't get the post-traumatic growth. Yeah. We get stuck in this place. And I think post-traumatic growth is the expression. See, so what it brings up for me is a child, and I'd want to obviously give it the best uh, start in life. Yes. Okay, but I'm thinking, well, obviously I don't want to traumatise my child, but... It makes me think about what about the concept of challenge, okay, and mm -hmm. not making their life too easy or mm -hmm. something. No, absolutely. So, no. Children do need stress. Yeah. yeah, it's not that children don't need any stress at all. Right. That's not where we're going. Good stress is a good thing, right, because it teaches them to be resilient. It teaches them, I can go out and meet new people and I don't need to be afraid. I can go out and play. I can go to parties. You know, I can say no when I need to. Good stress is a good thing. Then you have your tolerable stress, which is when people die or whatever. And it's tolerable because they've got the relationships that mm -hmm. they need in order to get through it. It's not having the relationships that makes it toxic. So having stress, having trauma can make you creative. There's no doubt about it. Right? That is researched. Having toxic stress, I think, can make you creative too. But it also gives you so many other issues. Yeah, around needing control, around safety, around trust. Yeah, that that you can't 
um, you can't function in society in the way that you can if you don't have toxic stress. And it's the intergenerational nature of that as well that causes problems. So parents who've had ACEs, who are, who've had toxic stress, will behave in a particular way with their children and their children then suffer because they don't know, they don't have the buffering relationships mm. that they need to deal mm. with things. They don't learn how to deal with their own stress. And then they have children who also then suffer. Yeah, so we have this intergenerational nature of trauma. I was watching The Last Survivors the other day on iPlayer and it's all about the Holocaust. And the children of parents were on there with their parents and they were talking about how their parents had come to the UK and had tried to make a life, yeah, and they were trying to be a good parent, but what they had seen and experienced there massively had an impact on them. And that then had an impact so that their children have secondary trauma because their parents weren't able to be there in the same way that they would mm. have had they not gone through that experience. So we have to be thinking about what can we do right at the beginning? Yeah, what can we do when someone gets pregnant, when they're having the baby? What can we teach them then that will save us all this money mm. later? But it's not really about money for me. You know, I don't care how much money they're saving, really. What I want to do is to make sure that those children are growing up not traumatised and stuck with toxic stress. Yeah, but actually knowing how to deal with things, how to be resilient. Yeah, and how to have a good life. Mm. Yeah. Mm. On the educational creativity side of it, if you are going to, and part of going through, um, I should say, if you're going to explore the darker meaning of things, you're going to go, kind of delve into that, you need to do it from a safe place. And if and this kind of comes into, into therapy as well, you get people to explore their emotions get in touch with their emotions to see where something comes from in a safe place so you can deal with it when they reach there and show them the, the coping mechanism the techniques that so they can then not be adversely affected by it they have no control over the issues outside of their body that's put that in there and then it's it's controlling their own emotions and controlling their own effect how they're affected by it so if you have a child who you have brought up and they have few very little aces certainly not on the toxic scale you're in that tolerable part then that person is more capable of exploring and be more creative without being the um what do they call them um flawed geniuses mm -hmm. the ones who end up killing themselves after doing a fantastic piece of work mm. and that's some, is that flawed genius what turns them into a great artist or is they're a great artist and then they've killed themselves? I don't know, another argument. But if that person is able to explore that side of it, look at all the people's dark pieces of work and explore the emotions of what it invokes in them and then describe it, they're still creating. Um, I have a thought, I won't call it a theory because I've never followed up on it, but you have children going to university who commit suicide. University is a place where educationally everything's available and you're asking children to think at a higher level to delve into themselves and look outside of themselves as well. Is that causing something 
for some children that they're not prepared to do. They're not capable of coping with. So I have, I've done a lot of introspection. Um, I suffer from depression, um, a, a number of things going on, of course. There's never just one. And I can be creative at my dark and I can be creative at my best. But it's different. Mm. They complement each other because I can go between that. But what I've learned is by disassociating myself with the emotion when I'm there, I can explore where it's coming from, which is the focusing and, and stuff that we do. So you can disassociate yourself from that, but it doesn't mean that you're not learning about yourself about it. I prefer to use the word distancing. Distancing. Than yes. disassociating. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I think that's a better word to use. Yeah. Um, finding the distance is really important. A safe distance it from is, it. It is, absolutely. Yes. Yes. So you're observing. Yeah. This is what meditation is all about. And, you know, we observe what is going on. So when we're looking at it from a distance, we're not in it. And that makes the difference. Yeah. yeah. There's always a need yeah. for the distance. Yeah, it's good stuff. And we need to tell everybody in the yes. world. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much for coming on. So. Thank you for inviting well, us. It's yeah. yes. been great. Yes. And uh, have you back sometime. Cool. Some yes, absolutely. Questions. Anytime you want. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it's very good fun, this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. We get to talk, which we like doing. <laughs>